Great news for Informed Pregnancy Plus subscribers. Dive into our Core Connection course included with your subscription. Hosted by Natalie Headings, a pre- and postnatal exercise specialist and ACSM certified personal trainer, she's an incredible teacher. This five-video series equips you with essential insights to understand what your pelvic floor and core are, how they work, and how to enhance pelvic floor and core strength and proper function during and after your pregnancy and birth. Learn about pelvic floor basics, key postural adjustments, effective muscle releases, and breathing techniques for a healthier core and floor. Don't wait. Visit informedpregnancy.tv and get started with the invaluable core connection today. I got a whole lot of questions for you. This kid's gonna test my will. I got a lot to learn and my baby's too. Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin. My guest today is an integrative and holistic pediatrician here in Los Angeles. He incorporates various methodologies into his pediatric medical practice. He's published research in numerous peer-reviewed journals on topics such as childhood injuries, obesity, and physical activity. Dr. Joel Gator-Warch, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You're such an interesting type of medical doctor. It's not all drugs and surgery. It's true. I did all the regular training and trained in regular allopathic medicine, but I did get a little bit frustrated with the regular system and the really short visits and medications for everything. So it spurred me to start learning a little bit more about natural medicine and combining the best of both worlds. And that means you just have more tools in your tool belt. Exactly. And I think that that's a key thing is when something's going on with a child, a parent wants to do something about it. And so they don't want to go home and just have nothing to do. They feel a little bit helpless. So it gives you a few more tools in your toolbox besides just the medication. Sometimes medication is warranted and that's great. But a lot of times there is something else you could do or something natural or maybe something with a fewer amount of side effects. And then that way you can give them something to do and hopefully the body has a chance to rebalance as opposed to doing a medication. But at the same time, sometimes you need a medication, so nothing wrong with it if you need it. Let's take a step back. You grew up in Canada. Mm -hmm. Is the healthcare system a little more holistic than it is in the U.S., or is it similar? I think it's pretty similar. There's certainly differences between the two systems, but I don't recall it when I was living there being that vastly different in terms of holistic versus allopathic or Western medicine. I mean, it might be a little bit different now, but I still think it's fairly similar in terms of it being very Western medical style. Mm -hmm. When did you get into the idea that you'd get into medicine? I had wanted to be a doctor probably since high school or maybe early undergraduate. I, I loved working with kids. I used to coach baseball and hockey and I ran camps. So I always loved working with kids and I love science. And so it seemed like the natural molding of the two to, to go into pediatrics at some point. So pretty early on, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Are there doctors in your family? There isn't doctors in my immediate family. I have some doctors that are cousins, but not, not in my parents or grandparents or anything like that. Mm. How is medical training for you? It's tough. I mean, medical training for most people, it's grueling. It's, it's a tough thing to go through. It's a lot of hours, long nights, a lot of studying. So definitely a very, very grueling process. 
but you do learn a ton and there's obviously lots to learn when it comes to medicine. So it's, it's good from that standpoint, but it's, it's a long haul to get through all the years and the lack of sleep sometimes and, and the stress can definitely affect you in, in other ways, physically and, and mentally as well. Yeah. And it's not just for a couple of years. It's a long program. You're under that kind of intensity for a long time. Absolutely. And in the traditional medical training, is there any study related to alternative healthcare? I mean, do they teach you anything nutrition-based? Not, not really. They don't teach you a ton. I mean, there's a little bit here and there on some plants and herbs, but, but very minimal. You learn nutrition, but much more from a, a medical perspective. So you learn about nutritional deficiencies and pathology. You don't learn a ton about what to eat, how to teach people to eat, how to teach parents what to tell their kids to eat, that kind of stuff. It's more you just work with a nutritionist. There's a nutrition question. And when you're in the hospital, you, you send it over to the nutritionist. So it's nowhere near enough training in nutrition. Did you go into private practice first and then start to add to your training, you know, like to do more holistic things? Or did you realize while you were doing your allopathic training that you wanted to add more? I realized during my allopathic training, I didn't start right into private practice. I wanted to get a little bit more experience being around a big team at first. I thought it was very valuable after those first years finishing residency to have some time around a big practice where you can still continue to ask questions if if there's something that you haven't seen before. Uh, So I started working in the hospital and then transitioned into private practice and was in another practice for a couple of years. And then I transitioned into my own practice now uh, about a year and a half ago. What kind of holistic modalities did you train in? So I learned functional medicine is the main modality. What does that mean? Functional medicine looks at the root cause of disease, so it really shifts the the mindset a little bit in terms of when you're talking about Western medicine, most of the focus is on disease and treatment, whereas functional medicine focuses a little bit more on the cause of the infection or the illness. So, for example, with a rash, in modern Western medicine, you might think about what could you treat it with, like a steroid cream. And if that keeps happening, then the rash keeps coming back then from a functional medicine perspective, you might think, well, why do you actually have that rash? Now, you might think about why in Western medicine, but it's usually not the first thing you think about, or it's not a lot of the way that we're taught, whereas functional medicine teaches you to think more broadly about why, getting more history, those kind of things. So that's the major thing that I learned. And then there's a lot of other modalities that I've learned on the side as well, supplements and tinctures and and things like that, where it's not necessarily all formal training, might be training with somebody or reading books or, or learning through doing. You know, in the traditional model of healthcare in the U.S., it's more like disease care, right? So if you do for pediatrics, go for periodic wellness checks. But generally, you call your doctor when something's wrong, when you have symptoms and you're trying to get rid of the symptoms. Is it different in an integrated practice? It's it's a little bit different. So everybody who does integrated medicine practices it a little bit differently because there's no real standard and there's not a ton of people especially in pediatrics that are doing it so everybody carves out their own niche the way that they want it for me i still do all of the regular stuff i do all the regular checks but it's more of a blending of the two when somebody is coming in so my patients are a little bit more savvy to a lot of this preventative care and thinking in that mentality so there's more questions and discussions around items like diet and sleep and exercise and toxins maybe a little bit less of some of the other things that are in traditional western medicine but we still do most of that And also when you're coming in for, let's say, a cough or a cold or something minor, 
like that, then a lot of times I'll offer both things. So I might say, you know, this seems like it's a virus. There's probably not a ton we can do from the medical perspective. Here are a couple of things like a syrup, honey, things like that that you could try. And if it's not getting better, then let me know. And we can always consider doing more medical treatment in the future or similar like an ear infection. A lot of countries don't treat ear infections with antibiotics or rarely treat them with antibiotics. So there are other things you could do first, like ear drops or massage or cranial psychotherapy. And if it's not getting better in two, three days, or it's really starting to get severe, that's when you do the antibiotics. A lot of times it's like, give them the prescription, but don't fill it. And if it's not getting better, then you can do the regular treatment. Wow, it's really cool to have so many different options. That's why I like to do it that way. And, and also each family is a little bit different. So when you're working in an integrated practice, there are some people that are very Western-minded, some people that are very natural-minded. And so finding that balance for each family. And, and a lot of times I'll just go through the options and say, here's the different things that you can do. You know, I'm not super concerned at the moment. So you want to just start with the natural thing. Or, and some people are like, ah, I don't really feel comfortable. I want to do the antibiotic. And if it's reasonable, then we can do it at that time. It just depends on each situation. What are, in today's day and age, what are some of the diseases that kids are struggling with that are on the rise? Chronic diseases, I think that just overall as a category, the thing that we're seeing on the rise. So things that you're seeing consistent diseases that just don't seem to go away, like allergies, asthma, rheumatologic issues, like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. We're seeing more gut issues. So tons and tons of gut health issues, constipation, diarrhea, bloating, stomach aches, food intolerances, those kind of things. In little kids? In little kids. I, there's a varying statistics about where the rates of chronic disease are. The CDC has it at about 25%, but I've seen studies that put it at 50%. And in adults, the chronic disease rate is over 50% now. So it, it's really in all ages that we're seeing these things. And we're seeing a lot of diseases younger and younger. Like diabetes was mostly a disease for elderly or older individuals. And now we're seeing all sorts of kids with, with diabetes. Things are just coming down in age. Do you have ideas on what's leading to the increase in chronic disease? My thoughts are it's really a, a lack of focusing on the foundations of, of our health. We've really gone away from some of the basics and gone more towards this treatment style of, of disease management. So for me, I call it the seeds of health being sleep and environment and toxins, exercise, diet, and stress. So these are the, the major factors that, that I really think about when I'm talking to my patients and what we're really seeing as, you know, movement away from focusing on these things. People are not sleeping as much. We're more stressed than we ever were. We're surrounded by toxins. We have a horrible diet. And so with all of these things that are just chronically getting worse and worse, the body's just not able to handle the basic everyday things anymore. And so it's leading to more chronic disease, at least in my opinion. I mean, sleeping more is obviously you just have to do it. Although some people try to sleep and they have a hard time sleeping. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the other things like chronic stress, do you have recommendations on how someone can try to combat that? Sure. I mean, it would depend on the age, but there, there's so many things that you can do for stress from essential oils that are calming like lavender, meditation. There's all sorts of meditation apps and programs for kids. Yoga can be great or even just finding some activities that you love to get your mind off of the stresses. So that might be being around your friends more, gardening, being involved in an activity. There, there's just so many things that you can do, but it's also a matter of making it a priority, recognizing that it's an issue, and then taking steps towards improving it. And also if you're chronically stressed, then maybe speaking to somebody, working with a therapist, they can give you strategies too. But to me, it's really identifying that there is an issue is the first step and then putting some steps in place where you can try to decrease the amount of stress a little bit every day until you get to a point where you know, things are a little bit more in balance. 
And in the later segment, we'll talk a bit more about nutrition and toxins. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Dr. Joel Gator Horsch. This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking to Dr. Joel Gator Warsh, and right now we're recording remotely, even though we never really do. Uh, we're usually right in the studio face-to-face because we're in the middle of, hopefully, uh, at the height of the global coronavirus pandemic, and everybody pretty much suggested to be in quarantine. So I know everybody with kids is a little bit, everybody's panicking about the coronavirus and COVID disease, especially if you have little kids, it's really nerve-wracking. So maybe we can talk about it a little bit. What is the difference between an epidemic and a pandemic? What does that mean? So an an epidemic is an outbreak of disease in a community or in a location, and a a pandemic is more of an outbreak of the disease globally. So it's it's a similar concept, but just one is, you know, epidemics more in the community. So if you had a, for example, an outbreak in Los Angeles versus a pandemic, meaning we have an outbreak that's going more globally and it involves multiple different locations. So at this point, we're definitely in the middle of uh, probably the worst pandemic of my lifetime, for sure. I mean, I've never seen anything like this. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely in the the midst of a pandemic. There's no question about it. And there certainly has been others in our lifetime. It's still very hard to know exactly where the numbers are going to go. We've had, you know, H1N1, and there was SARS and MERS. And so there, there have been other pandemics throughout our lifetime. But this one is still, we're not exactly sure where we're going to go on this one. So hopefully it won't be as bad as it's predicted. And hopefully with social distancing and working together as a community in a world, then we can curb and flatten out the curve just a little bit and decrease the rate of disease. And hopefully it won't be nearly as bad as as the predictions state. So that's at least at least our hope. You mentioned H1N1 and SARS and MERS, but those seem different to me. I mean, they didn't seem to make the entire world come to a screeching halt. They, they didn't, but if you look at the, at least the statistics, there were certainly, it's hard to say because we're not done with this yet, but there was a lot more death and some of them were even more contagious based on the, the contagion statistics that they've done. But I think that we're maybe a little more socially connected now and there are certainly more concern about this uh, than there, there maybe have been in the past. So we've taken steps much earlier than they ever took before. So I don't know if it's more concern about this one or we've just taken more steps earlier 
just really hard to say at this point, and it's probably going to be hard to say at the end of the day anyways, because, you know, you, you can only do what, whatever you do, and if the numbers are lower at the end of the day, well, maybe the steps that we took worked or helped at least make it not as bad as some of the other pandemics in the past. So we'll, we'll see. In terms of parents with kids, and I know this information is changing, the one thing we know about this coronavirus is that we don't know a lot about it, and we're trying to learn more every day. We certainly, we don't even know who has it and who doesn't have it because there's so few tests available at the moment. And more science will emerge over time. But in terms of right now in this moment, do we know how it affects kids? Yeah, so that's the only silver lining, or if you want to call it a good thing about a virus, is this one, for whatever reason, doesn't seem to be affecting kids very, very severely. It has an extremely low death rate in kids. The numbers are like 0.1 to 0.2% I've seen on different websites. Very, very, very few kids across the world have died. And it seems to be much more severe in, in the elderly population. So at least if there's something good and when talking about the kids, then, then they don't seem to be as severely affected. Most of the kids or teens or young adults that are getting affected are having fairly mild symptoms. So fever, cough, sore throats, headaches, body aches, some kind of flu-like symptoms seem to be what is most common. And there's been some cases and some stories and some people in ICU, so it certainly does occur. But it seems more that either the elderly or the immunocompromised are most at risk for this disease. So is it possible that kids are getting it and we don't even know they have it? It's definitely possible. So when you talk about coronavirus, just as a, as a category of virus, it's actually very common and it's not new in any way. 20% of common colds are, are caused by coronavirus. So that isn't new in any way. This is a different strain, but still coronavirus strains in general are for the most part mild. They, they certainly can cause severe symptoms, but just like the flu, when you think about it, most people that get the flu, they, they're not feeling good for a couple of days. They might have coughs or throat, headache, body aches, but they generally get better after a couple of days, but you certainly can get very ill. And, and that's a similar for the coronavirus in that most people don't have any severe symptoms, but some do. In terms of looking out for our kids, what kind of symptoms would we look for before calling the doctor? Symptoms that we're seeing for coronavirus tend to be high fevers and coughs. So fevers above 103, cough. But really, you want to be calling your doctor for anything if you're worried, just similar to any other virus or, or cough or cold. So what I've been telling my patients is if, you're, if you'd be normally worried, then, then you should be worried about the same things now. You should think about coughs just as their regular cough. And if you're having trouble breathing, then of course you'd always get seen. So that would be something to always get seen for. But otherwise, still most coughs and colds are just regular coughs and colds. And we want to be good stewards and make sure that we're not getting it and passing it on. So if you do have a cough or cold, you can just assume that you do have it and just take regular intelligent precautions like staying away from elderly people and washing your hands and not exposing other people and quarantining for several weeks just to make sure that it's not passed on and make sure you don't have it. If you're worried about symptoms, do you go into the doctor? Most places are not having people come to the doctor to not have them exposed. They're sending them to either testing centers. Some places have drive-through testing or some of the hospitals or urgent cares have, have testing. Some places are doing it, but the issue, at least right now, is, is that there's so few tests. And even if you do have a test, a lot of places, it takes a really long time to come back. So a lot of offices that I have seen have closed down and are doing telemedicine. 
and just chatting with patients. So we're doing mostly telemedicine in my office right now. I'll see some patients, but if it's a new cough or a new fever or anything that we're concerned about, then we're telling them not to come in so we don't potentially expose other people and just assume that you have it. And if you want to go get tested, you can. But for the most part, I think a lot of people are just staying home and assuming that they have it and just self-quarantining themselves because the reality of it is, especially for kids, most kids are not going to have severe symptoms. And so you can just keep an eye on it just like a regular cough or cold. And if you're worried, if things are progressing, if you're having trouble breathing, then you would get checked out just like you would any other day. It's also flu season. Mm -hmm. Are there ways to tell if you just have the plain old flu or like a strep infection versus this? It would be hard to tell over the, the phone and you can definitely do flu testing or strep testing to see if you're coming in. If you're at home, so strep uh, tends to, if you look at the back of the throat, it's a very severe, painful, sore throat. There's usually redness at the back and there might be some white plaques in the tonsils or little red dots in the back of the throat, or you might have a rash on your chest. So that would be something to think about for strep. And then flu tends to have high fevers and lots of body aches, but so does coronavirus. So I think there's a lot of crossover between a lot of these viruses. So it would be hard to tell for sure without testing for it, which one it would be. I'm guessing with a integrative pediatric practice, many of your patients are breastfed because, I mean, we keep talking about not being within six feet of people and keeping distances even with your family members in the house. Are there any changes that you recommend for breastfeeding? At this point, there aren't changes recommended for breastfeeding. I actually spoke to a couple of OBs and other practitioners about this. And, and the latest research, and there's still not a ton of research, but from what they have done, it doesn't seem like the virus is transmitted through breast milk, which is good. So you should continue breastfeeding if you are a known positive with coronavirus. So if you've been tested, you know you have a positive, then it's recommended if you're breastfeeding just to wear a mask, just to try to prevent any spread between you and the baby. But it's still recommended to keep breastfeeding wow. if you have it. Yeah. Oh, that's a good piece of information. Overall, are the things that we generally do to keep ourselves strong and healthy, like immune boosted, the same things that we would want to do now? Yeah. So uh, the big things I talk about with my patients are trying to keep those foundations strong. And especially this time, it's so hard not to be stressed out and worried. And you know, there's so much news and every other story on you know, Instagram, Facebook, whatever, whatever you're reading and watching, it's all about coronavirus and what's happening in other countries and how bad it's going to be. And it makes you very stressed out. And we know for a fact that one of the worst things that you can do for your body in terms of getting a virus is to be stressed out. Cohen did the landmark studies in 1990s and early 2000s where he was placing upper respiratory viruses in noses. And he was doing studies where some of the population was either self-reported stressed or not stressed or hadn't had sleep or did have sleep. And any one of the studies that he did, if you were more stressed out, you were way more likely, four to six times more likely to get the virus than if the people that weren't stressed out. Same thing with people that didn't sleep versus sleep. So, you know, we want to keep those foundations strong because, you know, if you get too worried about it, then that's going to make it more likely for you to get sick, maybe from the coronavirus, but, but from also any other cough or cold as well. So whatever you can do to try to keep yourself calm is very important. And also having all the healthy foods, keeping your minerals and vitamin levels up, getting some vitamin D, all of these things are very well published in the medical literature to be helpful at preventing viruses or any disease. So we don't want to forget about those at this time either, which is really easy to binge eat or not go outside at all. Or oh, So are you saying vitamin D from the sun to go outside and get vitamin D by being in the sun or to take a supplement? E either one. So th there's still no recommendations that you can't go outside. We don't want to be around people and exposing, but you can certainly go out for a walk, go out in nature if you're somewhere that it's nice out. 
a walk around and, and getting vitamin D uh, is very helpful. We know that you know, if, you, if your levels are below 25 to 30 on vitamin D, you're at significantly increased risk of getting any kind of virus. But they've done those studies, especially on the flu. And we haven't done a lot of studies on coronavirus, this coronavirus, because obviously it's new, so there's no way to do those studies. But these are all things that are inferred from just general other virus or studies from the flu, uh, influenza, which can most likely cross over into, into coronavirus because most upper respiratory viruses are fairly similar. All right. Two more questions on this topic. So once somebody starts to show symptoms of viruses in general, do you have recommendations and supplements that they would take? I keep hearing also people talk about zinc. What do you recommend for someone to help kind of shorten the duration of the viral infection? Yeah, the common things that people do are vitamin D, vitamin C, in general, elderberry syrup is very common. There's a little bit of controversy on COVID-19, whether you should or shouldn't be doing elderberry syrup, but that's a common one that people use for most viruses. Uh, zinc is very common. Echinacea, a lot of people use. Um, colloidal silver is a common one that people will use for cough, cold, sore throats. And essential oils you could do as well. Um, my last question on this topic is, how do you see this getting under control? How do we end it? There's a couple of things. So number one, if people are not passing it on to other individuals, then at some point it will start to slow down and the rate will continue to fall. We know that in China right now, they haven't been seeing new cases in some of the hot spots in the last day or two. And we're recording this. So it's actually, that's a good signal that it hopefully can be under control. A lot of upper respiratory viruses are not very common in the summer. So hopefully as the weather gets warmer, this virus might be sensitive to that. So hopefully that will help as well. But I think in general, just good practices, washing hands, social distancing, and being patient. And if the virus can't get passed on to anybody else, then, uh, then there's no one to get sick from it. And hopefully it starts to go down. And also people start to develop antibodies to it. So then hopefully as the community, if someone gets exposed, then over time that starts to decrease. And, and oftentimes it'll take a month or two months to see that cycle and that's what we are seeing at least in china right now where they've had it going on for what we think is two three months and it's starting to come down now all right so there's there's hope for light at the end of the tunnel there's definitely hope for light at the end of the tunnel we you know as a race as a species we've been through all sorts of pandemics and they always end so there will be an end the question is what's going to happen how severe is it going to be and how many people will be affected we just have no idea at this point but one hope that whatever our, our predictions and whatever we're doing is going to be successful and we're going to keep those numbers to, to somewhat of a minimum across the globe so that way we can move forward. Yeah, and it's, it is really, even though the past couple of pandemics haven't reached this level in terms of dysfunctionality of the world, there have been many throughout history that have and we always recover and we always pick up the pieces and life will resume at some point. Um, just to be clear, we're recording this at the end of March 2020, so that's when this data is relevant. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Berlin and I want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart, literally. Omega-3. It's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked. With 95% of women deficient, Needed, the supplement brand I trust, created their brand new Omega-3 soft gels. Designed by perinatal experts, they support you and your baby's well-being from fertility to pregnancy and beyond. Unlike other brands, Needed's Omega-3 is sustainable, pesticide-free, and third-party tested for purity. Plus, my favorite, 
It has a milder taste and smell, perfect for sensitive mamas. Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference, consciously crafted for your health and the planet. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. All right, doctor, let's talk about as a uh, integrative pediatrician, you're very focused also on what we can do right. Where do we start with our little kids? So we have babies, we have toddlers. How can we get them off on a good start and prevent chronic disease? And, and specifically with nutrition, like what are the first foods that you recommend and how to integrate them? Sure. So first of all, I would say it goes back even to before you're born. It goes back to what your mom and parents are doing and, and eating. You know, the, the food that we eat, that we're exposed to all of the toxins that's in our body and that some of those chemicals go onto the baby as they're being formed as a fetus. And there was a study that was done and they looked at chemicals in the, the placental blood and over 200 chemicals were in the, the cord bloods. So we know that there are things being passed back and forth to the baby. So it goes back even to what your eating as to what's going to be a factor for, for the child. And then second, when we're first born, we know that, that breast milk, there are certainly uh, tons of benefits and tons of advantages that you just can't get from formula. Not everybody can breastfeed, and there's certainly reasons why you might have to use formula. And if you need to, that, that's fine. But we through tons and tons of research and tons of studies that have shown that there are decreased rates of allergies and eczema and ear infections and all, all sorts of medical issues down the road that are decreased to some degree if in, in breastfed children when there's antibodies. So the immune fighting infection-fighting uh, cells that are passed on through breast milk, those are things you just can't get from formula. So that's something that it can do, at least for a couple of months, then, then there's some huge health benefits down the road from breastfeeding. Is there an ideal amount of time that you recommend breastfeeding for? So the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends to try to breastfeed for six months if you can. Most people, if they have a goal, they aim for a year. But if you can get to six months, then you get the vast majority, over 90% of the health benefits. So that's the, the number that we're always aiming for if you can at least get to six months, and that's, that's great. But realistically, any amount of breastfeeding that you can do is great. If you can do it once a day, you can do a little bit, then you're going to get some health benefits, and there's, there's no real downside to doing the breastfeeding. So as much as you can do. Mm, what, when do you recommend starting to integrate food? So most pediatricians will recommend starting food around six months is pretty average for, for most kids. There, there's different cultures around the world. Everybody does things a little bit differently. So some kids start a little earlier, some kids start a little later, but six months is average. And the recommendations have changed a little bit, I would say, for most pediatricians. I think even when I was in training, a lot of pediatricians were saying start with rice cereal, put that in the milk, and then they've done a lot of studies and research now that show there's lots of chemicals in there. So there's arsenic and other things found in rice cereal. So a lot of pediatricians have changed their tune to just starting with veggies. So mashed up veggies is, is a good, easy place to start. So uh, avocado, carrots, squash, yams, wh whatever you want, just one thing at a time. And most people will get one thing in every couple of days and then put in a new, a new food. By exposing kids to different flavors of vegetables, is it more likely that they'll like them as they get older? So there's varying research on that. I think the earlier exposed kids to these things and the more they're exposed to them, the more likely they're going to like them and the more likely they're going to get used to them. If you start with more sugary, carby, starchy foods, then they, these kind of vegetable foods might be a little bit more bland or not as well within their taste buds and taste zones. So it's a hard thing to say. There's not, I don't think, hard evidence to say that if you don't do vegetables, they'll never eat them. But I think it's mm -hmm. more about 
setting setting the uh, precedent. So I think it's just starting with veggies from a nutrient standpoint, a vitamin standpoint is the most ideal. And I would say more, just logically speaking, if you eat those things early on, you're going to be more likely to eat them later. I imagine that good nutrition is a building block of avoiding chronic disease. So as the kids get older, what ideas do you have on feeding them in ways that will keep their bodies strong and keeping disease away? The big, big overarching theme is to eat real food. So eating real food means eating actual things that you could pick that are actual items like almonds or apples or pears, as opposed to processed foods, as opposed to sugar, preservatives, chemicals, toxins, or things that have great marketing and pretty boxes. We're, we're looking for real food, ideally things that are even from your own garden or things that are planted or local foods, because the food really loses its nutrient density. So how good it is for you, if something's been shipped across the world, it's not nearly as nutritious for you as something you just picked and, and ate that day. So we want to think about nutritious foods, nutrient-dense foods, and then foods with low chemicals. So a lot of our food is, is sprayed with pesticides and, and chemicals. And so wherever you can, uh, you try to eat organic foods because those ones have fewer chemicals. And we know that the more chemicals you have in your body, then the more reaction your body's going to have, the more inflammation. And that's what tends to lead to chronic disease. So it sounds like it's a combination of what to eat and what not to eat, uh, eating things that are just natural the way nature produces them, and also local so that the potency is higher, but also avoiding things that have been treated either with pesticides so they look prettier or processed so that they have things, either toxins or high carb and low nutrition value. Yeah, I mean, most definitely. It's really easy to forget that we are literally made up of the things that we eat. Those are our building blocks. And so if you're having... A crappy input, then you're going to have a bad output. And so if you have all these chemicals and toxins in your body, then at some point, your body's going to fight back, your body's going to get angry. And yes, we have amazing bodies, we have amazing systems, detoxification, great liver and kidney and all these things that can get rid of some of the chemicals and some of the toxins. But at some point, things build up to a level where your body just can't handle it anymore. And that's where genetics comes in because every child, every person is a little bit different. And so what I can handle might be different than what you can handle. But at some point, we each get pushed over the edge. And when we get pushed over the edge, then normal, basic, everyday things that your body should be able to do, it stops being able to do. And at that point, that's where we start running into things like chronic disease or illness and getting sick because your body just can't handle the regular virus that it should have been handling. So then you get sick. Outside of nutrition, what other preventative techniques do you recommend? Another big one is, is toxins. So we're just absolutely surrounded by toxins in our environment, with our cleaners, our chemicals, our soaps, our makeups. Everything that we do and touches our skin and everything that's in our home, they have all sorts of long names, long chemical names. And we really haven't gone into the habit over the last several decades of really reading labels for these things. I think people are starting to get a little bit more savvy with the food, but they're not also thinking about the chemicals in their home. And again, you know, our skin's an organ, and if we're touching chemicals all day and all night, then some of those things get absorbed, and over time, that can lead to chronic disease as well. So just thinking about creams that you put on your children, you know, look at the bottle, look at the label. If there's a bunch of really long chemical names, it's probably not good for you. Try to pick creams and lotions with words on them they actually know, like calendula or jojoba oil or other things that are their actual words that you actually know what they are. Don't get products where you don't know what the things are. Are. And similarly for cleaners, you can do your old-fashioned vinegar, water, baking soda, things like that, that you can just bake a uh, 
make a cleaner. You don't always have to get the thing that kills 99% of bacteria. That might be relevant now more than ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So okay. there, there, there's a mixture of things that you can do. And, and certainly when we're in the midst of uh, disease and things like that, then okay, maybe you want something that's going to kill a little bit more. But in general, vinegar, water, baking soda, this can do a great job of cleaning and it can decrease exposure to toxins. In an era where we're more and more locked into our electronic devices, how important would you say getting out for exercise is in the overall package of preventative health care? Oh, it's extremely important. We're, we're so focused on our devices and phones and we're inside all of the time and our bodies are meant to move. And the, the more that you move, the healthier that you're going to be. And you need to get outside and get your hour or whatever it is of exercise every day. You got to get back into nature. We're disconnected from nature. We're not getting enough natural vitamin D anymore. And all of those things contribute to chronic disease. If you're not moving, then you're not sweating. And if you're not sweating, then you're not flushing chemicals out of your body. And I don't think there's any foundation that's specifically so much more important than there. It's, it's a combination of everything because if one thing is way off, then your body's out of balance. So we got to yeah. focus on all of these things. All right. I'm learning a lot from you and I know our audience is too. We're almost out of time. I do have one question to end off with is, do kids, especially if they eat the way you were talking about, if we feed our kids the way you were talking about, do they still need nutritional supplementation? Most kids, I I think, don't in general. I think supplements are just that. They should supplement your daily life. And so you shouldn't need, in general, a supplement forever or a medication. You know, if you have a thyroid issue, you might need to take thyroid medication. But you shouldn't need to take a multivitamin for the rest of your life. You shouldn't need to take a probiotic for the rest of your life. These are higher dose vitamins, minerals for specific things. So if you're low on something, then you get it back to a certain level. And then your body should be able to stay in balance. We eat so poorly, so a lot of kids are nutrient deficient, or even if you eat pretty well, a lot of our foods are nutrient deficient, and we're seeing this more and more even in very healthy eaters. So sometimes a a multivitamin or something that can be helpful, but ideally you get these minerals and vitamins from your food. A supplement can never replace a healthy diet, so it's always better if you can to eat healthy, but if you have a picky eater or you were sick recently or you just want to boost the immune system over the winter season, then a supplement can be extremely helpful, but it shouldn't be a replacement for a healthy lifestyle. Nothing replaces that. Thank you so much for sharing such valuable information with us. Where can we find you online? So you can find me online at integratedpediatrics.com or you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Joel Gator, probably the easiest two places to go. Perfect. Thanks for being here with us and at home. Thanks for listening to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. If you like our program, share us with your friends and leave us some feedback in your podcast app. And for more pregnancy and parenting related media, visit us on Instagram at Dr. Berlin. That's D-O-C-T-O-R-B-E-R-L-I-N. I got a whole lot of questions for you This kid's gonna test my will I got a lot to learn and my baby's too <laughs> This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike Dr. Mom Butt Bomb As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. 
I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash. <laughs> 